talked last week about the flying Wallendas, and so I dug up my uh, pictures from, uh, uh, we saw them last year in Branson. So let's, let's take a look at this. And uh, they're doing this all, go ahead, they're doing this all without, uh, without any safety net. can't remember how she got down to there or how she got back up, but I know she did. There they are. Let's give them a hand. Let's give them a hand. That's pretty amazing. Now, is, that, is that just cool? I mean, that's just really cool. And then, But you think about what we saw last week. They know how their father or in some cases even their grandfather died and many others in their family, and yet they continue to do that. I, I just, you know, I kept looking at the floor. I'm like, there's got to be like, you know, isn't there a mattress down there? There's got to be something. There has to be something, but there wasn't. And uh, that's what, uh, in, a, in a position that we are in trying to understand God's word in Romans 9, there is no safety net. Listen, if we get this wrong, there are consequences. And and they can even be deadly, definitely spiritually, theologically, personally, emotionally. Uh, we need to strike a balance. So notice what it says in your notes. How do we maintain the mystery in Romans 9? And here's what I want you to write into that. Keep a biblical balance. Keep a biblical balance. So as you turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 9, that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to maintain a biblical balance. Of course, we said that begs the question, <laughs> you know, what's the biblical balance? Some would say... Uh, that if you teach Romans 9, as we have been learning it, that that's imbalanced over here. Others would say, well, you're, you, you haven't gone far enough. And so uh, how do you do that? Well, you have to stay on the tightrope of the text. You have to stay on the tightrope of the text. So notice in the picture there it says, don't overemphasize human responsibility to the extent that you eliminate divine sovereignty in Romans 9. But that other side of that of that counterbalance. The other side of that bar is don't overemphasize divine sovereignty to the extent we eliminate human responsibility from the chapter. And I say it again, and hopefully it'll just get pounded into our ears and our minds and our hearts. God's sovereignty and human responsibility are not equal. Otherwise, uh, we would be at a stalemate in an arm wrestling contest with God. Because the Bible clearly exalts God's sovereignty over human responsibility. But if you put a period there, you will be in balance and fall off the tightrope. No, there's a comma and it says this. But, it do, and I'm not even sure if it should have a comma there, but we know there shouldn't be a period. Let's put it that way. But it does so in a way that does not eliminate human responsibility. So, what we're doing last week in this uh, is looking at three suggestions. Uh, to walk the tightrope of Romans 9. It's kind of like an overview and a review of what we have done. And, and here's what we're leaving with from Romans 9. And last week we said this, the very first thing, and it bears repeating, allow Paul to focus on 
what the Holy Spirit led him to write in the chapter. Don't read into the text what's not there. Don't remove from the text what is there. We need to walk the tightrope of the text. Now, the second point is where we were le- where we were at last week, and it's this. Do not eliminate. Do not eliminate divine sovereignty in the unconditional election of individuals to salvation from the chapter. And uh, there, I, I kind of wrote this up on the, on the board last week, and so I put it in your notes this week. The key words is that we don't want to eliminate individual election from that passage if it's there. We don't want to eliminate salvation in that passage if that's there. And we don't want to eliminate the unconditional election. And I had those up on the board here as I have them there in your notes. And Pat, you asked a question, well, isn't it both? And uh, and I don't mind you asking questions like that, but sometimes my answers, you know, on top of my feet may not be the accurate. And I said, yes, but actually that's only truth for the first two. If you notice, is it is election in this chapter corporate or individual? Well, we said those that want to eliminate divine sovereignty or lessen it in this passage, want to focus on the corporate because it's easier to think of God choosing groups of people and then I choose to jump into that group than God specifically choosing me to be in a group. Here, you come with me. You're saved. Here, you come with me. I want you to be a part of my people. Well, okay, God chooses a big group of people and then I get to choose whether I step into that. Okay, they're more comfortable with some, some we're, we're more comfortable with that. But the reality is, is we're going to see both. But the emphasis in nine is on individuals. And we taught that point last week. The, it's both in there. But in chapter nine, the emphasis is on individuals. The second thing that we're going to be looking at, and, that, and this is the next thing we'll look at uh, today, is election to service for God or salvation by God. Those that want to lessen divine sovereignty in this passage are going to emphasize, well, this has nothing to do with salvation. It has to do with God sovereignly picking individuals to use for his redemptive purposes. So when he talks about Moses and Pharaoh, that has nothing to do with their salvation. He just says, Moses, I'm going to use you and accomplish my purposes. And Pharaoh, whether you like it or not, I'm going to use you and accomplish my purposes we're left, you know, the, the question of these men's salvation is not even at issue. Now, just on the surface, that just doesn't, you know, you read the story of Moses and Pharaoh. I mean, here's God saying, let my people go. And he says, no. And that has nothing to do with the man's eternal destiny. I mean, come on. Let's, you know, let's think about this. And yet what they would come back and say is, well, God using him. Uh, sovereignly using him doesn't bear whether he's saved or not. And that's true. God uses unsaved men and women to accomplish his purpose. Cyrus, who God used to punish the nation of Israel, he used him. And just because he used him doesn't mean he was saved or he had anything to do with his salvation. That, so that's, that's what they argue. But notice what it says in that middle, middle box. It says, well, the focus is on both. Uh, but the emphasis in 9 through 11, and we'll see this here in a moment, is on salvation. We are chosen by God for salvation and to serve his purposes. So uh, we're going to see that it's both. 
Now, here's where I didn't want to leave any any, uh, lack of clarity last week. Is it conditional or unconditional election? We'll get to that today. But in this passage, it is only unconditional election. It is only unconditional election. And that's the root of the argument, of, of the debate, of the tension. Because one side wants to say, well, God chooses people, but it's because he, those people first choose him. God looks down the corridors of time, or God knows all things, and he knows who will choose him, and he chooses those who choose him first. Now, if that's the case, who has the ultimate choice? The people do. God is looking and saying, oh, you chose me? Uh, you, you, you propose to me, I will now accept your proposal and let's get married. Unconditional election is, we, no one in the world wanted to marry us. We had no chance of marriage in our future and God said, I choose to propose to you. Not only that, but I'm going to woo you and win you to the point that you are overwhelmed with me to the point that you accept. Unconditional or conditional? Both is not in this passage. You've got to fall. There's only one rope across the ravine. And that rope is unconditional election. But we need to stay balanced on it according to the text. So does that clear clear that up? I just didn't want to leave the impression that all of these were both. Okay, so let's let's dive in. Last week we already answered this one. I just left it in there. Uh, for so that you would know that there's three ways people to uh, attempt to eliminate. The first way is they attempt to see only corporate election in the passage and not the sovereign choice of individuals. Well, we addressed that last week. You, I, I have the arguments in there. You can go back and look at that. Uh, in fact, let me read this one quote. Um, I'm going to read several quote, quotes by a man by the name of Jack Cottrell. And the reason I'm doing that, he's a champion of human responsibility. He's a champion of the opposite view of what we're uh, seeing in this text. And so I'd rather quote the opposing view rather than, you know, my twist on things. So here's what he says. I think Paul makes clear that election is individual. I agree that the Arminian doctrine of election, the the doctrine that champions human responsibility is personal and individual. This view is more consistent with the overall theology of classical Arminianism and with the biblical teaching itself. Okay, here's what he's saying. I agree, it's individual. Okay, that's, that's, okay so the opposing viewpoints, overwhelming, it's individual. Okay, number two, this is where we want to start today. Three ways people attempt to uh, eliminate this. The second way is they attempt to see only election to service in the passage. They attempt to see only election to service in the passage and not the sovereign choice of individuals to salvation. So what they want to say in Romans 9 is this. Oh, yeah, it can be unconditional election. It can be individual. We don't care as long as it has nothing to do with salvation. Because when it comes to salvation, we choose. If it comes to God using me in his uh, sovereign purposes in history, well, he can choose me unconditionally. Now, he, let me just say this right off the top of it. You know, if God is sovereign over my will and using me for anything, why can't he do that for salvation? I mean, you say, well, because I want to have freedom in my salvation. Well, 
Why not in everything else in your life? So, you know, it's kind of a an either-or proposition here. And, and yet, this is what they want to do. They want to say it's only. So, notice in the notes, it says this. People who want to champion human responsibility in Romans 9 will argue that Paul is not talking about eternal salvation. It doesn't matter whether it's groups or individuals, but about special roles in fulfilling God's purpose of salvation. So, let's let me quote my friend Jack here again, who is a champion of this uh, of uh, of uh, of this viewpoint. And here's a couple things that he says: to be chosen to be chosen for service is totally different issue from being chosen for salvation. Totally different issue. And I would venture to say, no, it isn't, because these things are tied together in a lot of complex ways. He goes on to say, notice in verse uh, chapter 9 there, mercy is used several times. Uh, in verse uh, 15, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. And then again in verse um, 23, in order to make known the riches of his glory for the vessels of mercy. Here's what he says about mercy. Mercy means the favor God shows when he bestows on someone the privilege of playing a role in the drama of redemption. So mercy here for him has nothing to do with salvation. It's just God being graciously saying, hey, Pharaoh, you get to play an awesome role in the deliverance of Israel. I don't know if Moses would look at that as you know, a merciful thing, but that's, that's the idea. He, he's choosing you. Uh, Calvinists are right that the election described in 9, 7 through 13 is unconditional. They're wrong to assume that election to salvation rather than election to service. So here he's saying, yeah, you're right. It's unconditional. The problem is you're focusing on salvation. So let's look at it. Here's the problem with this view. God's sovereign choice of individuals for salvation can't be eliminated from the passage. Let me give you three reasons. Number one, and this is the most important one, Paul's burden is for salvation. Paul's burden in the passage, the very beginning of the passage. Look at Romans 9, 9, 1 through 3. 9, 1 through 3. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish. When we study that, his heart is just breaking and aching. He's burdened, and here's why. For I could wish, I know it's impossible, because salvation is eternally secure, but I wish that I myself were accursed. The word for being sent to an eternal hell separated from God. I wish I were accursed and cut off from Christ. Why? For the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh, the people of Israel. And what he's saying is simply this. They're going to hell. The issue is their salvation. They have rejected Christ. They're going to hell. And I wish I could go to hell in their place. If I could go to hell in their place, I would do it just so, so that they could be saved. Well, what's the topic of, of, that he's talking about? Salvation. Now, here's what you've got to think. If, this, if, if all he's talking about is Israel is no longer God's chosen servant in the course of history, and now it's the church, do you think Paul would be willing to go to hell for that? Okay. I'm not talking about their eternal destinies. I'm just so disappointed that God no longer chooses them as his choice servant that I'm willing to go to hell so that would be reversed. It just doesn't make sense. 
And it's just not consistent also with the whole context of Romans. Romans 8. What did he just get done talking about in Romans 8? The eternal salvation and security of the believers who have been chosen, predestined, called, justified, and glorified. And now he turns and he says, the nation of Israel has none of those things. They are not saved, the majority of them. And it breaks my heart. So his burden is for salvation. And not only that, turn to Romans 10. That's the beginning of 9. Now look at the beginning of 10. Again, his burden is salvation, not service. Look at verse 10, or chapter 10, verse 1. Brothers, my heart's desire and my prayer to God is for them, for them is that they may serve God. No, what's it say? That they may be saved, that they may be saved. So I was talking about salvation. Now I'm still talking about salvation. Now go to Romans 11. And these are the three main divisions of the book or of the three chapters, a new top uh, a continuation of each chapter. Now, look at uh, chapter 11, verse one. I ask then, has God rejected his people? And what do you mean by reject? rejected them as servants or rejected them in terms of salvation? Well, by no means, for I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says? Elijah uh, says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel. Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have demolished your altars. And I alone am left and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to them? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bound the need to fail. Now stop right there. You could argue, and this is why, this is why there's, this is difficult. This is difficult. He saved those prophets to serve him. So maybe it's service, not salvation. But here's the point. You can't let how it's used in the Old Testament determine how Paul's going to use it in the New Testament. Because notice what he goes on today. say. Okay, that's what God did in the past. And he, pre- he chose unconditionally to spare the lives of these prophets, these these. Uh, um, 7,000 prophets, but notice verse 5. So too at the present time, there's a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. Now notice, what then? Israel failed to obtain what is seeking. The elect, the chosen, obtained it, but the rest were hardened. And then he goes on down. And well, let's take you down to verse 11. So I asked, did they stumble in order that they may fall? By no means. Rather, through, the trespa- through their trespass, whoop, salvation has come. So it's both. But the emphasis is on salvation. He's using Old Testament illustrations, and we'll see this in a moment, to emphasize salvation here in the New Testament. What is at stake? Here's the bottom line. What's at stake is not just service to God, but also salvation from God. What is at stake is not merely God choosing some to serve him, but God choosing some to be saved by him for all eternity. Let me give you a second proof of that. Paul's language. Paul's language that he he uses. uh, Paul's language means salvation by God and not service for God. Go back to Romans 9 again. Romans 9 verses 6 through 11. Here's where it's really debated. Here's the, the big debate. Romans 9, 6 through 11. 
and, and even 6 through 13, where he says, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated, and, and purpose of election. I mean, okay, what's he talking about here? Well, when you look at the words that he uses, well, my goodness, the words that he uses, children of God in verse 8, children of promise in verse 8. These are words that are never used by Paul of any other than saved people. It's salvation that he's talking about. Look again at verse 11. He says, God's purpose of election. And look at verse 11 again. Him who he call, him who calls. These words, election and call, move back to Romans 8. They were just used by him. They were just used by him. Look at Romans 8, 28 through 29. Romans 8, 28, 29. Notice what he says. And we know that... We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are, there's our word, called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. No one debates that that passage is about what? Salvation or service? salvation and service <laughs> we're saved to serve but it's about salvation well now he's using these same words in romans 9 him who calls uh, children of promise children of god god's purpose of election there's nothing else that would be in our minds except salvation and so paul's language is very clear now those individuals look at romans 9 again when uh, the bible talks about Isaac and Ishmael. He talks about, particularly, verse 13, Jacob and Esau. Those who want to talk about service, well, in fact, let's look at it right there. It says, the older will serve the younger. So they're, you know, they're like, well, they're there. It's about service. But again, how it's being used in the Old Testament does not dictate how he's going to use it here in the New Testament. It's very evident that the context is salvation. So, let me go on to number three, Paul's application of the various passages. Paul's application of the various passages show that it's about salvation by God and not just service for God. Now, here's what, again, the other side of the argument. They would say, well, I can take you to passages in Genesis where God blesses Ishmael. I can take you to passages where God blesses Esau. Therefore, Paul's not talking about them being damned. In fact, they may be saved. Well, okay, fair enough. God does bless these individuals. But let me ask you this. Does God bless all people or just save people? Both. Yeah, God blesses all people. God bless the rain. He causes the rain to fall on the just, the Bible says, and the unjust so just because the old testament says that god is blessing these people and and, and sometimes uh and, and it, it just that's fine god that's what god does he is a gracious god he blesses people but just because you're being blessed of god doesn't mean that you are saved or not saved and so just because in the old testament it says these guys were blessed but here's the other side of that in the New Testament, it says that these guys 
are talked about in the New Testament as though they are unsafe. For instance, Esau. Can you think of a passage in the New Testament where it would it implies and even seems that this guy's unsaved and you don't want to be like him? How about Hebrews 12? Or I think it's, I'm sorry, Hebrews 13, where it says, don't be an unholy and immoral person like Esau who traded his blessing. And so whether these guys are saved or not, Scripture's not exactly clear. The issue is how is Paul using these texts? How is he referring to these people in the context of, of Romans 9? And I would say to you that it is clear that they are not, uh, that it, the issue is salvation. Let me take you just to one here without getting you too more confused. Look at, look at verse 13. This is the probably the hardest verse in the whole chapter. Verse 13. And he's quoting Malachi chapter 1, verses 2 through 3. And he says, as is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Let's, let's go and look at it in the Old Testament just so that we see the context. Malachi chapter 1. Verses 2 through 3. Or actually, we'll, we'll go 1 through 5. So how does Paul use the Old... How does he apply this Old Testament passage in Romans 9? Let's take a look at it. The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord. Okay, he's saying this to Israel. But you say, how have you loved us? How have you? Last book of the Old Testament. Last book of the Old Testament, basically there in the middle of your Bible. Malachi chapter 1. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have, I lo- how have you loved us? And he says, is not Esau Jacob's brother? Okay, declares the Lord. Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says, now he's going to the nation, We are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins. The Lord of hosts says, they may build, but I will tear down. And they will be called the wicked country and the people with with whom the Lord is angry forever. Your own eyes shall see this and you shall say, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. He's saying, Israel and Edom are at war. And he's saying, hey, how did you love me? And he says, look, I loved Jacob, even though these guys were brothers, I chose him. And I'm against him and his heritage, both him and the nation. And yet you, you I have loved, even though you don't deserve it. You, Jacob, and his people. Well, when you come to Romans 9, all he's saying, the same principle is there. God chooses whom he will show mercy to. And the ones he shows mercy to do not deserve it. Well, it's hard to understand, but it it really comes down to this. Paul is not taking an Old Testament passage. He's taking it and he's using it in the context of salvation in Romans. And uh, there's debate about that, but I think it's pretty clear. Now, let me give you the bottom line on this. Paul's concern in Romans 9 is salvation by God and not service is seen by the context of Romans 8, the words used in Romans 9, 
His use of the Old Testament passages is not inconsistent with the Old Testament context. It fits with the purpose of 9, which is this. Look at verse 6, Romans 9, verse 6. God's word has not failed because his purposes are rooted in God's unconditional election of individuals for salvation. Why? Verse 11, look at verse 11. In order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, God. Verse 16, so then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Verse 18, so then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever That brings me to the third way. third way people try to eliminate divine sovereignty in election is they attempt to overlook the fact that the basis of God's choice of individuals for salvation in Romans 9 is not based on God knowing ahead of time who would choose him. That's called foreknowledge. And that's how it's properly understood. God knew ahead of time who would choose him. That's not what Romans 9 is saying. But it's on God choosing ahead of time who would choose him. That's foreordination. So here's the two differences. Does God choose because we first choose him? Or does God choose... Or do we choose him because he first chose us? Does that make sense? There's, a, a, you know, there's the two. There's your two options. Now, what do we have? Now, I pulled out the, the theologians, our buddy Jack, and a man by the name of J.I. Packer. And I'm not trying to get complex on it. I, I want to give you these definitions so that you get it from, from each side, and then we look at the text. So let's look at con- con- conditional election which is what uh, those who want to champion human responsibility would teach. Here it says, conditional election teaches that before the world ever existed, God, and there's the key word, conditionally predestined some specific individuals to eternal life and the rest to eternal condemnation based on what? His foreknowledge of their free will response to his law and his grace. So, I choose you and there's a condition. What's the condition? You have to choose me first. You choose me first, okay? Now, unconditional election, what does it teach? It teaches that before creation, God selected out the human race, foreseen as fallen, they've rebelled, those whom he would redeem, bring to faith, justify, glorify in and through Jesus Christ. This divine choice is an expression of free and sovereign grace For it is unconstrained, and there's the key word, and unconditional, not merited by anything in those who are its subject. Now, not all of you, but most of you have been through this whole study of Romans 9. Just based on those two guys' definition, which do you think is more consistent with Romans 9? Which is the emphasis of the passage? I would say to you that it's very clearly unconditional election. In fact, our friend Jack Cottrell, the guy I keep quoting here that champions the other side, listen to what he says. I read this and I thought, wow, this is really amazing. One champion of conditional election admits that nowhere in the Bible does it say that God's foreknowledge of his chosen people is specifically focused on who would or would not place their faith in Christ. Here's the thing. Everybody says that champions this view. God foreknows who will choose him and on that basis. And yet you cannot find anywhere in the Bible where it says it. Nowhere does it say, I foreknew who would choose me. 
That's just not there. Here's what this man says, and he believes in this. Okay, he, he believes in conditional election. And here's what he says. These verses that mention foreknowledge and foreordination in the Bible say only that God foreknew certain persons. They do not say specifically what he foreknew about them. But in view of the Bible's teaching about the condi- but in view of the Bible's teaching about the conditional nature of salvation, as such, Arminians reasonably infer that what God foreknows is our decision to meet those conditions, especially the condition. Now, what is this guy saying? Saying it's not in the Bible, but it's reasonable to think it is. Don't know. You gotta decide. Yeah, I say, well, is it is it reasonable to do that? Well, look in your notes. In other words, those who would like to champion human responsibility over divine sovereignty in Romans 9 have to try very hard to overlook the obvious in this passage. And here's what I want you to do. Get your Bible ready. There are several times in Romans 9 that Paul could have easily mentioned God's foreknowledge of who would choose to receive the offer of salvation and who would reject it. If it's if election in this passage is based on God's foreknowing what choices people would make, there are numerous times where he could bring that into this chapter. Let's look at it. Look at verse 11. Look at verse 11. Though they were not yet born and had done nothing good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who chooses to believe. He could have said that. It's not a works. It's because I knew you would choose me. But what does he say? Because of him, that is God, who calls. It's based on me calling you, not you choosing me. Look at verse 13. He could have written, he didn't even have to quote Malachi. He could have written, instead of writing, as is written, Jacob I love, but Esau I hated, based on the view of foreknowledge, he should have wrote, as is written, Jacob loved me, and Esau hated me. But he doesn't say, Jacob loved me. It's not about Jacob and Esau making choices. It's about what? God choosing and rejecting whom he wills. Look at verse 14. Now, this is a good one. Look at verse 14. What shall we say then in response to this, what he's written up to this point? What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. And now, here's what he could have said. God only chooses those he knows would have chosen him and God only rejects those he knows who would have rejected him. He could have written that, but what did he write? Verse 15, for I say to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. Look at 15 again. He could have written for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom chooses to receive my mercy and I will have compassion on whom chooses to receive my compassion. But what does he say? I'll have mercy on whom I choose to have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I choose to have compassion. Look at verse 16. Verse 16. Again, he could have made this very clear. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but he could have said, but on the one who places their faith in me. He could have said that. But what does he say? but on God who has mercy. It's God's choice to show mercy to us sinners. It's not us sinners saying, oh, we'd love to be saved by you. 
Well, about verse 18. Again, verse 18. So then he has mercy on whomever chooses to believe. And he hardens whomever chooses not to believe. He could have said those things, but instead he says he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. Now look at verse 19. Verse 19, he says, you will say to me, why does he still find fault for who can resist his will? And some of you might be saying this right now. You're saying, whoa, why does he find fault? Who can resist his will? Now, if this was bay, if there was a misunderstanding here, here's the place to make it clear. Here's what I really mean. And here's what he could have wrote. If you come to that conclusion, you've missed my whole point. I'm not trying to say God still holds responsible people who cannot ultimately resist his will. That's not what I'm saying at all. At all. You got me wrong. God forbid, let me clear up that misunderstanding. It's all because they don't choose me. He could have said that. But look at verse 20. Paul said. He basically says, you're right. No one resists his will. You're right. You're right in that. But here's the problem. Who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Hey, listen. If you drew the conclusion of verse 19 and it was a wrong conclusion, and I was the Apostle Paul, I'm going to clear that thing up. And if I believe that God chooses those who first choose him, that would be the place to make that clear. Instead, what he says is, I've argued, I've laid out my argument for 18 verses. And here's the conclusion you've come to. And I can't argue anymore because God is sovereign. God is graciously, mercifully, unbelievably, mysteriously sovereign. So look at number two. Point two in your notes. We know we are rightly understanding Paul's argument when the result of our teaching is to raise these very same objections, none of which are the result of thinking God chooses us because we first chose him. If he had been arguing that, nobody would resist that. Humanly, no one would resist that. But instead, they are all a result of Paul's teaching that God chooses so we will choose him. Now. Does foreknowledge play a vital role in salvation? It's mentioned in eight, Romans 8.29. It's going to be mentioned in Romans 11.2. We'll explain it when we get there. It's mentioned in 1 Peter 1.2. But Paul doesn't raise the issue in Romans 9 at all. The word's not in Romans 9, and it's certainly not there the way many people understand it. The way many people understand foreknowledge is God knows beforehand who will choose him, and then he chooses and that's not the meaning, I believe, or knowledge in the Bible. We'll have to wait till Romans 11 to tackle that. I think Romans 9 is quite the opposite. And from those verses we just read, it comes down to this. God's choice of individual sinners for salvation is based solely on his merciful and just character, not on foreknowing they would choose him. And to eliminate that from, to try to read that into that passage is to fall off the tightrope. Carl Walinda. It's to go to an extreme. Now, 
Jack Cottrell, this, this guy who champions free will and human responsibility, listen to this quote, and it was important enough I have it in your notes. Arminians, people that champion free will who would totally disagree with how I've been teaching Romans 9, who read Romans 9 in terms of election to a sal- salvation, assume and assert. Those are two big words. They assume this and they assert. In other words, it's not there, but they say it. That this election is conditional versus unconditional or corporate versus individual and according to foreknowledge instead of according to predestination. In my judgment, though, such qualifications are difficult to sustain in view of the teaching of Romans 9 itself. And here's a guy on the other side of the thing saying, you can't argue that from the text. So why is he on the other side and not on the side we've been? Because he says all of that's immaterial because Romans 9 is not about salvation. It's about service. That's individual, unconditional, and not based on foreknowledge. So, here's the champion of this view. All you got to prove from Romans 9, that it is about salvation. And if you can prove that, then the other side agrees with you. Some of you say, I could less. Okay, that's all right. But here's my passion. Listen, here's my passion. I am not here to push upon you my opinions or my views. These kind of lessons aren't fun, and I'm ready to move on. I know you are. But I want to know that what I preach and teach is based on this text. Now, again, this is where I am at this point in understanding this passage. But I want to bring you along, and I want you to see, and if you disagree, that is great. I'm not consigning you to hell. It's not my job. I'm not saying you're anything. I'm just saying, great, let's look at the text again and let's talk about it some more. But here's the deal. Here's a guy that champions this view, and he's saying, look, it's not it, election in this passage is not conditional, it's not corporate, and it's not according to foreknowledge. All you have to be convinced of now is, is he talking about salvation? If he is, then that's, what, that's what's taught in this passage. Now, I want to close with this illustration. I don't want you to get the wrong idea. And it's easy to do that about what we've been talking. Election keeps no one out of heaven. I ran across this, and it's really good. This, this man says, doctrine of election really troubled me when I first began to wrestle with it. It seemed unfair. It seemed like those who weren't chosen were doomed from the start, that they never really had a chance. And then this man says, then I heard this illustration, and it changed his whole view of it. Perhaps it will for you as well. He goes on and shares that after giving a brief survey of these doctrines of sovereign grace, uh, the man was asked for questions from the class. One lady in particular was quite troubled, and here she, and this is what she said, and I think this is a common misconception. This is the most awful thing I ever heard. You make it sound as if God is intentionally turning men and women who would be saved, receiving only the elect, that you're, you're turning people away who want to be saved. And here's how this man answered. You misunderstand the situation. You're visualizing that God is standing at the door of heaven and men are thronging to get in the door. And God is saying to various ones, yes, you may come, but not you. And you, but you can come, etc. 
The situation is hardly this. Rather, God stands at the door of heaven with his arms outstretched, inviting all to come. He desires all to be saved. Yet all men, without exception, are running in the opposite direction toward hell as hard as they can go. So God, in election, in electing love, graciously reaches out and stops this one and that one and this one over there and that one over there and effectually draws them to himself by changing their hearts, making them willing to come. Election keeps no one out of heaven who would otherwise have been there, but it keeps a whole multitude of sinners out of hell who would otherwise would have been there. Were it not for election, heaven would be an empty place and hell would be bursting at its seams. That kind of response grounded, I believe, that it is in scriptural truth does put a different complexion on things, doesn't it? If you perish in hell, blame yourself. It is entirely your fault. But if you receive Christ as Savior, credit God, for that is entirely his work. To him alone belong all praise, all glory, for salvation is all of grace from start to finish. Election keeps no one out of heaven, but guarantees that those God has chosen will be there. Election is meant to be a comfort and encouragement to you who are believers this morning. Never are unbelievers encouraged to try to discover if they are elect. That's not the issue. The message for unbelievers is you are all invited to come to Christ. Come one, come all. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. We'll see this in Romans 10. So if you know Jesus this morning, praise him for rescuing you from your headlong rush to hell. And if you don't know him this morning, turn to him. Turn to him because you are invited to come to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now that's just good stuff. And I end with this. Romans 9.29, as Isaiah predicted, If the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Listen, if it wasn't for God's unconditional election of individuals to salvation, every one of us, our destinies would be like Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, that's how you stay balanced and not eliminate sovereignty. Next week, we're going to learn how to not fall off the other side of the tightrope. And now how not to overemphasize God's sovereignty to the point that we eliminate asking people to come to Jesus. So you're not going to want to miss that. Let's pray. Father, we come. This is very difficult things that I barely understand, Lord. I only understand them because of your grace and submission to your word. And I pray that we would all just dig into Scripture more. And as Kirk said in his testimony this morning, we just would learn more of you. And as we learn more of you, you're more mysterious than what we can comprehend. And so, Father, I pray, those who know they are saved, they've placed their faith in Christ, they know that, that they are your elect, that they would just shout praise and thanksgiving and glory because salvation is of the Lord, not of us. And if any are here and they are not sure, if they are saved, they are not of their eternal destiny, then they would turn to Jesus morning, place their faith in the gospel. It says, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Pray this in Jesus' gracious, glorious, sovereign name. Amen.